Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and reading today from Martin Luther's sermons, and I found one entitled Carnal Security and Its Vices. He uh, uses 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 to 13, as his text. Let's read it. Now these things were our examples, to the intent we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us make trial of the Lord, as some of them made trial, and perished by the serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them murmured, and perished by the destroyer. Now these things happened unto them by way of example, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as man can bear. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will, with the temptation, make also the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Carnal security and its vices. I'll be giving numbers uh, as I go through his message here. Each number is just the number of a paragraph. I don't have to read those, but I think it might be wise to, to keep the continuity of the message with those paragraph numbers. Number one, here is a very earnest admonition a message as severe as Paul ever indicted, although he's writing to baptized Christians who always compose the true Church of Christ. He confronts them with several awful examples selected from the very church from Israel, the chosen people of God. Paul's occasion and meaning in writing this epistle was the security of the Corinthians, conscious of their privileged enjoyment of Christ, of baptism and the sacrament. They thought they, they lacked nothing. They fell to creating uh, sex, S-E-C-T-S, and, and schisms, schisms among themselves. Forgetting charity, they despised one another. So far from reforming in life and retrieving their works of iniquity, they became more and more secure and followed their own inclinations even allowing a man to have his father's wife. At the same time, they desired to be regarded Christians and boastfully prided themselves on having received the gospel from the great apostles. So Paul was impelled to write them a stern letter, dealing them severity such as he nowhere else employs. In fact, it seems almost as if it were going too far to so address Christians. The rebuke might easily have struck weak and tender consciences with intolerable harshness. But as in the second epistle, seeing how his sternness has startled the Corinthians, he, he modifies it to some extent and deals tenderly with the repentant. 3. However, in the striking scripture examples of the text here, he sufficiently shows the need for such admonition to them who would, after having received grace, become carnally secure 
and abandon the repentant life. 4. The text should properly include the beginning of this 10th chapter, which is read in the passage uh, for third Sunday before Lent. He begins with, I would not, brethren, have you ignorant that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They did all eat the same spiritual food. They did all drink the same spiritual drink. Howbeit with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Then follows our text here. Now, these things were our examples. Number five. As we said, the admonition is to those already Christians. Paul would have them know that although they are baptized into Christ and have received and still enjoy his blessing through grace alone, without their own merit, yet they are under obligation ever to obey him. They are not to be proud and boastful, nor to misuse his grace. Christ desires obedience on our part, though obedience does not justify us in his sight nor merit his grace. For instance, a bride's fidelity to her husband cannot be the merit that purchased his favor when he chose her. She is the bridegroom's own because it pleased him to make her so, even had she been a harlot. But now that he has honored her, he would have her maintain that honor henceforth by her purity. If she fails therein, the bridegroom has the right and power to put her away. Again, a poor, wretched orphan, a bastard, a foundling, may be adopted as a son by some godly man and made his heir, though not meriting the honor. Now, if in return for such kindness the child becomes disobedient and refractory, he justly may be cut off from the inheritance, and not by the merit of their devotion, as Moses often hinted. Did the Jews become the people of God? They were ever stiff-necked and continually rebelled against him. God, having chosen them and led them out of Egypt, urgently commanded them to serve him and obey his word. But when they failed to fulfill the commandments, they had to feel the terrific force of his punishment. Next topic, Israel's carnal security is a warning to us. Number six, their example, Paul here with great earnestness, holds up to the world as a warning against carnally and, and confidently presuming upon the grace and goodness of God because we've already received of them. In unmistakable colors, the apostle portrays the teaching of this striking and important, this, this weighty and specific example. Rightly viewed, there certainly is no greater, more wonderful story from the creation of the world down to the present time. Nothing more marvelous to be found in any book except that supremely wonderful work, the death and resurrection of the Son of God than this history of a people led by God's power out of Egypt, through the wilderness, into the promised land. It's filled with the remarkably wonderful works of God, with striking examples of his anger and of his great kindness. Referring to these examples, Paul goes on to imply 
as Christians and, and baptized, you should be familiar with them. If you're not, I would not fail to bring them before you for reflection on what befell other people of God, according to the scripture record. They were our fathers, a noble, intelligent, and great company and congregation of men, numbering over 600,000, not counting wives and children. They, Paul tells us, were termed, and rightly, the holy people of God. God designed their welfare, and through Moses, their bishop and pope, they had the word of God, the promise and the sacrament. Under Moses, they were all baptized when he led them through the sea and by the cloud under the shadow of which, sheltered from the heat, they daily pursued their journey. At night, a beautiful pillar of fire, an intense lightning-like brilliance protected them. In addition, their bread came daily from heaven and they, they drank water from the rock. These provisions were their sacrament and their sign that that God was with them to protect. They believed on the promised Christ, the Son of God, their guide in the wilderness. Thus, they were a noble, highly favored, holy people. But, number eight, with the great mass of the people, how long did faith last? No longer than until they came into the wilderness. There they began to despise God's word, to murmur against Moses and against God, and to fall into idolatry. Whereupon God vindicated himself among them, of all that great nation which came out from Egypt, of all the illustrious ones who assisted Moses in leading and governing, only two individuals passed from the wilderness into Canaan. Plainly, then, God had no pleasure in the great mass of that host. It did not avail them to be called the people of God, a holy people, a company to whom God had shown marvelous kindness and great wonders, because they refused to believe and obey the word of God. The prospect was good when they were so wonderfully and gloriously delivered from their enemies and had at Mount Sinai received from God the law and a noble order of worship, their prospect was good for them to enter into the land. They were already at the gate. But even in that auspicious moment, they provoked God until he turned them back to wander 40 years in the wilderness where they perished. Number nine, their punishment was wholly the result of their odious arrogance in boasting in the face of God's word uh, of their privileges as the people of God upon whom he daily bestowed great kindness. Do you not recognize, they bragged, the holiness of this entire congregation among whom God dwells, daily performing his marvelous wonders? In their pride and defiance, they became stiff-necked and obstinate enough to continually complain against Moses and to oppose him whatever course he took with them. Thus they, day by day, awakened God's wrath against themselves, forcing him to visit them with many terrible plagues. These failing to humble, he was compelled to remove the entire nation. Many times God would have destroyed them all at once had not Moses prostrated himself before him in their behalf and with earnest entreaty and strong supplication turned aside his wrath. 
because of their perversity? Moses was a most wretched and harassed man. Now, the man Moses was very meek above all the men that were upon the face of the earth. That's Numbers 12, 3. For he was daily vexed with their defiance, their disobedience, and the opposition of this great company of people. Further, he had to witness and endure for the entire 40 years the numerous and awful plagues sent upon his people, his heart being filled with anguish for them. And then, too, it was his, his continually to, to withstand God's wrath. Number 10. Terrible indeed is the thing we learn of this famously great people, God's own nation, unto whom he reveals himself to whom God and Christ himself are revealed, a nation God governs and leads by his angels, a people he honors by wonders marvelous beyond anything ever heard on earth of any nation. As Moses says in Deuteronomy 4, 7, what great nation is there that hath a God so nigh unto them as Jehovah our God is whensoever we call upon him? And yet all who came out of Egypt and had witnessed the mighty wonders God wrought among them and among their enemies fell and, and glaringly sinned. Not according to the measure of the mere weakness and imperfection of human nature, but they sinned disobediently and in willful contempt of God, hardened in unbelief and insensibility. Excuse me. They brought upon themselves overwhelming punishment. Number 11. Paul mentions several instances of the sin whereby they merited the wrath of God to illustrate how they fell from faith and disregarded God's word. First, he makes the general assertion that with many of them, God was not well pleased. He means to include the great mass of the people, particularly the officials and leaders, the eminent of their number. Individuals looked up to as the worthiest and holiest of the congregation who actually had wrought great things. Many of these fell into hypocrisy through boasting of the divine name, the divine office and spirit. Korah, for instance, with his faction, including 250 princes of the congregation, and that's Numbers 16, 1 and 2. He and his leaders claimed right to the priesthood and government, equal with Moses and Aaron, and so ostentatiously and boastfully that only God could say whether they were right. Necessarily, God had to make it manifest that he had no pleasure in them, for they boasted until the earth swallowed them up alive, and many who adhered to and upheld them were consumed by fire. Next topic, Israel's vices in the wilderness punished. Paragraph 12. Proceeding, Paul recounts the vices which occasioned God's punishment and overthrow of the people in the wilderness. First, he says, they lusted after evil things. In the second year from the departure, when they actually had come into Canaan, they forgot God's kindness and wonderful works on their behalf and becoming dissatisfied, longed to be back in Egypt to sit by the flesh pots. They murmured against God and Moses until God was forced summarily to stop them 
with fire from heaven. Many of the people were consumed, and a multitude more were smitten with a great plague, while yet they ate of the flesh they craved. And therefore the place of that camp was named the Graves of Lust. Numbers 11. Such was the reward of their concupiscence, which Paul here apps, aptly explains as lusting after evil things. Paragraph 13. Truly it is but lusting after the wrath and punishment of God when in forgetfulness of and in gratitude for his grace and goodness that we seek something new. The world's coming to be filled with the spirit of concupiscence, for the multitude is weary of the gospel. Particularly are they dissatisfied with it because it profits not the flesh, contributes not to power, wealth, luxury. Men desire again the old and formal things of popery, notwithstanding they suffered therein extreme oppression, were burdened not less than were the people of Israel and Egypt, but they, they will eventually have to pay a grievous penalty for their concupiscence. Paragraph 14. In the third place, the apostle mentions the great sin, idolatry. Neither be ye idolaters, he counsels, as were some of them. And not simply the lower class of people were guilty in this respect, but the leaders and examples, as they led, the multitude followed. Even Aaron, the brother of Moses, himself a high priest, swayed by the influential ones, yielded and set up the golden calf. That's in Exodus 32, 4, while Moses tarried in the mount. We are astounded that those eminently worthy individuals, having heard God's word and seen his wonders liberally displayed, should so soon fall unrestrainedly into the false worship of idolatry, as if they were heathen and possessed not the word. Much less need we wonder that the blind world always is entangled with idol worship. Paragraph 15. Where the word of God is lacking or disregarded, human wisdom makes for itself a worship. It will find its pleasure in the things of its own construction and regard it something to be prized, though it may be imperatively forbidden in God's word, perhaps even an abomination before him. Human reason thinks it may handle divine matters according to its own judgment, that God must be pleased with what suits its pleasure. Accordingly, to sanction idolatry, it appropriates the name of the word of God. The word must be forced into harmony with the false worship to give the latter an admirable appearance. Notwithstanding, the worship is essentially the reverse of what it is made to appear. Similarly, popery set off its abominations of the mass, of monkery, and the worship of saints. And the world in turn seeks to set off that idolatry to make it stand somehow before God's word. Such is the conduct of the eminent Aaron when he makes for the people the golden calf, Exodus 32, 5 and 6, an image or, or sign of their offerings and worship. He builds an altar to it and causes to be proclaimed a feast to the Lord who has led them out of the land of Egypt. They must imitate the worship of the true God 
a worship of sincere devotion and honest intention with their offering, the calf, in the attempt to introduce a refined and ennobling worship. 16. Thereupon follows what is recorded in Exodus 32.6, to which Paul here refers. And they rose up early on the morrow, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink, and then rose up to play. That is, they rejoiced and were well pleased with themselves, content to have performed such worship, and deemed they had done well. Next they proceed to their own pleasure, as if having provided against God's anger. Thenceforth, they would live according to their inclinations, wholly unrestrained and unreproved by the word of God. For, as they said, Aaron made the people free. 17. Such is the usual course of idolatry. Refusing to be considered a sin, it presumes to merit grace and boasts of the liberty of the people of God. It continues unrepentant and self-assured, even in the practice of open vice, imagining every offense to be forgiven before God for the sake of its holy worship. Thus have the priestly rabble of popery been doing hitherto, and they still adorn, yes, strengthen and defend their shameful adultery, unchastity, and all vices with the name of the church, the holy worship, the mass, and so on. That is the halfway point of this message of Martin Luther. We'll do the other half next two or three days from this time. Thank you so much for being here. I know you've been blessed, as I have, by being reminded once more to stay on that straight and narrow Stay close to God, to listen very carefully to what's being said in church, to get into the Word of God and know what the Word of God says about everything. I trust that you will do that. Got other great men of God on this site. I hope you'll be looking around, seeing what you can find there. Look, just click on the word series, and you'll see that we've we've taken a lot of roads down through the years into. Great histories, great sermons, just a lot of good stuff. I, I hope you'll go for it. North Korea is mentioned quite often on this site. 800 audios, half of them in Korean, that uh, you, you probably need to check out, at least a few of them. There's studies on the Quran and Muhammad and prophecy and through the Bible and commentaries. I do hope that you will look. And I've got another website called faulknertales.com. I'll just let you check that one out on your own. I think there's a really good series we're doing right now on the hymns. I'll be off of that pretty soon, but and then just be visiting each one of the different series one day at a time, you know, one episode at a time. But I was trying to catch up with this particular series, and I've hit some wonderful. I've had some wonderful moments here. I hope you will too. You might want to check out. Um, there is a fountain filled with blood on the Faulkner Tales site. You will be. Bless FaulknerTales.com, and then within two or three days ago, um, oh, you have to click on the great hymns stories, and then uh, click on there is a fountain filled with blood. You will be touched. All right, that's it. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun. Lord willing, we get to talk again real soon. Bye bye.